You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. So again, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm so glad you're here with us this morning. My name's Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Hopefully somebody's had a chance to share with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do. So uh, like Ty said, we're getting into Sardis this morning. We've been in a series called Seven, walking through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation written by John as words from Jesus. And so uh, what we've been doing, just as a reminder, is we've been listening to the words of Jesus to these seven churches that actually existed in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, at the time. And, and, and what we said is we know that this is a, these are specific congregations with specific things going on, and there's a specific context that they have, and that Jesus is speaking to that. But what we're trying to do is we're recognizing that the number seven is important. The, sim- the symbolism of that number is important. It means the completion of, of you know, God's church. So that when Jesus speaks to these seven churches, we can incline our ear to hear what the Spirit has to say to us uh, over 2000, or 2,000 years later, right? We can incline our ear. Every single church at the end, Jesus says, let, the, let the, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's what we've been trying to do is saying, God, give us an ear to incline ourselves to hear from you what you have to say to us through the letters to these churches. And so what I'd like to do is pray for that this morning. Before we jump in, pray, Lord, give us ears to hear. So if you'll bow your heads, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you we don't have to go anywhere else. We lay down right now all of our best ideas, our best advice, all the earthly wisdom collectively, we lay it down and instead we ask now, would you give us ears to hear from you, the fountain of truth. Jesus, speak now to us and, and give us the ears to, to hear and to receive what you have to say. And in so doing, Holy Spirit, we ask that your words, the words of Christ would be a comfort to those who are mourning or hurt or wounded, that it would be healing to those who are broken, that it would be convicting to those of us who need that reminder. It would be confronting to the wayward heart among us. It would be the gentle spoken word to that person who needs it 
or the word fitly spoken to the one who needs wisdom. We ask, incline our ear to hear from you now. For the glory of your name, we ask, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this morning we got to talk, we got to start by talking all about reputation. Let me start with the text here. Ty's already read it, but I'll just reread the first verse. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So I know right off the bat when we start talking about reputation, there's, a, there's some of us in the room that are probably under the, very few, but there's at least a handful that are like, listen, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Like, I don't care about the reputation that the others ha- may have of me. That's just not me. I say what I think. I live how I want, and that, people just have to deal with it, my existence, right? They just channel the, the poet from 1980, right? I really don't care. Or I don't really care about my reputation. Some of you sang that whenever you heard that, and there's a, a curse word in your mind, okay? I didn't say it, though. You did that. That was you. Uh, I don't really care about my reputation, right? That some of us believe that. But here's what I think if we're honest, all of us desire to have a good reputation. We do. All of us desire to have, hopefully we want to be known by others as someone who has character or maybe there's some trait that you really want someone to know you as. Uh, And we can't pretend like we're unfettered by the opinions of others that they hold of us. It's It's easy to say that we don't care, but maybe even like that song I just mentioned, maybe the bad reputation is the reputation you want. Maybe that's really the desires. I want to be known as the person who doesn't care. So even still, there's a desire that people would see me a certain way. Even the most secure among us, right? There's someone you care, whether it's your spouse or your dad or you know, your, your mom or someone that you really care about. You want to make that impression. And, and here's what I want to say. I think that's entirely normal. I think it's entirely human. And I don't even necessarily think that there's a moral judgment that we should have on saying that it's entirely bad. Here's what I want to say. It's just a reality of life. And here's why. A bad impression on someone can lead to a bad reputation, let's say at work. And then a bad reputation at work could be the difference between you getting a raise or not getting a raise. You uh, getting that promotion or not getting that promotion, right? How about this? Uh, Getting a bad reputation that you're the friend who talks too much. Anybody? You're the friend who talks too much, right? And that could lead to people maybe of avoiding you or tuning you out when you get on your soapbox, right? And in the same way, having a good reputation among your peers can lead to some good things. So let's say you're the person with the reputation of being loyal. So then people start to think of you as someone that they might rely on. Or maybe you're the person with the reputation of integrity and discernment. And so people begin to trust you and come to you for wisdom because that's the reputation that you have. Or maybe you're the person with the reputation as a good listener. And so in a time where no one's really a good listener, you're that good listener. People start looking you up to be the one they want to share their heart with because you don't interrupt them midway through by saying, oh my gosh, let me tell you my story. Right? Guilty of this, by the way. I was just saying from experience. I do that. The harder thing about this, though, is reputation can be really difficult to shake. Like if you ever experienced that, like once somebody knows you as something, it's hard for them not to know you as something else, right? Businesses have known this for years. It's why in our free market society, there's an entire industry devoted to reputation building, right? You have to rep, like build your reputation as a business, maintain that reputation. And this entire industry is built upon giving consultants, giving advice to business leaders on how they might simultaneously build a good reputation and then sustain that good reputation in the public eye regarding their work. In the online revolution, this just increased, right? So with the the uh, technology and the whole new array of uh, opportunity at our fingertips, I guess you could say, 
all these businesses are having to grapple with things like Yelp. So Yelp didn't used to exist. It's like if a few people said they had a bad pizza at your pizza shop, all right, that's tough. But now it's like I had a bad, you know, if you have this scathing review and it goes viral, now your pizza's terrible no matter what, right? So now these businesses have to figure out, they literally will hire people, depending upon how large the business is, to contact these reviewers and figure out a way we can get that changed up. It's something we could do. Seven free bad pizzas so that you say it's not a bad pizza, right? Please help us out here. Chick-fil-A is fantastic at this. You hear stories about them. They'll call you up and say, oh, we missed your order. Then you, all of a sudden you got the GM at your house with like, brand, like food and then like seven other like coupons. Like I love these people, right? And the, the idea is, hey, we got to make sure that we, we continue to keep our credible reputation. And this isn't just Yelp. You could say TripAdvisor. You could say Amazon. You could say Face. I can go on and on and on, right? Online, we have to keep that reputation. There's a whole other industry that was built called brand building. You might be familiar with this. This is not just brands like companies that have brands. It's gone to the place where individuals are actually a brand unto themselves. You know, they have their own logos and things like that. It's odd. You can have everything from uh, sports teams to universities, from oil and gas companies to artists, Instagram influencers, and churches. They all have their brand. And you got to kind of build the brand, protect the brand. And there's really just no way that we can escape the power of reputation, which is why I say it's a fact of life. But our culture tells us this, and this has not changed for 2,000 years, your reputation is everything. And Jesus steps into the church at Sardis and says, no, it's not. Your reputation's not everything. At least not your reputation with the world. And hear me on this. I'm not trying to say that it's nothing. Proverbs says a good name is to be valued above many riches, right? So we know that it matters for something. But I'm going to say something to you that I think Jesus is getting at at the heart of this text. And as soon as I say it, I think it's going to resonate because until it's vocalized, we don't really think about it. But when it's vocalized, you're like, ah, that makes sense. And it's this. We all know that reputations matter. But the moment that you care about your reputation among your peers enough to betray your own integrity, you know that you've lost the center. If you're willing to betray who you really are in order to pretend to be someone else, we all know that we've made a bad trade. Sardis made this trade, their, very, their own very life in the church in order to be seen a certain way. And that is the church at Sardis in a nutshell. So let's talk about them a little bit. They had a wonderful reputation. And I think it's important for us to really sit in on this and try to bring ourselves into the 20th century with this, 21st century. Sardis was a church that was active. Sardis was a church that was engaged in a manner that was even noticeable by the outside community. They were the lively ones. They were the movers and the shakers. They didn't have a problem with inactivity. You never had to worry about whether or not there was going to be something on the church calendar. They were doing it. We would have been, it's important we note this, we would have been wowed by the production quality of Sardis, okay? Like, kids ministry was bumping. Student ministry, not a problem. Like, they got it, and it's awesome. Programs for teens, tweens, in-betweens, yes, yes, and yes, okay? Outreach, check. Front door greeter, dentist quality smile, all right? Artisan pour over coffee, decaf and regular. Yes. Relevant preaching, nailed it. Worship team, there's no flat notes, right? You're talking Grammy quality. The lighting is like just dim enough where nobody can see you raise your hands in the bridge, but just bright enough where you can read your Bible. You guys know what I'm talking about, the niche levels. And they even had someone back there to like raise it and lower at the right times. You know, if we want to get real into it, the student ministry, like the fog rolled in at the bridge of the third song. So that the spirit was represented. You know, they had dry ice teenage volunteers letting the spirit move. 
And from an outsider's perspective, they had done everything right to preserve their reputation in the community. And then Jesus steps in. He sees clearly beyond all of this, right to the heart of the matter. He indicts Sardis by telling them they are just a nicely decorated corpse, which is intense, isn't it? Like Sardis may be the most intense because I don't know if you've noticed, but he says, I know your works. And then he says nothing good about them. Just intense, just intense rebuke. What's the message? Beware of mistaking external activity or busyness for aliveness or fruitfulness. We can have tons of movement as a church, new campaigns, new decor, new programs, vibrant music, trendy social media presence, and still Jesus is looking at the condition of our hearts, and if that is wanting, it's all for nothing. The fact that Jesus steps into Sardis and he is the coroner and not the coronator, we should all pause. Why do I say that? The fact that he steps in and he says, I pronounce this dead, and he's not stepping in and saying, I'm going to give a crown to this royal church. When we, the reason that stories carry with them such intrigue is whenever something happens on the stage or something happens in a movie or something happens in a book that you didn't expect, that's what makes a great story, right? That's what really draws you in. Like when Forrest Gump is an athlete, you're like, what? I want more of this. You know, like all, he can outrun cars. You're like, this is good. It's intriguing. It's, it's something you didn't expect to happen. Jesus stepping into Sardis right now would have been an unexpected response if you just looked at it from the outside. And that's why it should intrigue us. That's why it should cause us to lean in a little bit. Because what it means is that it's entirely plausible for you and for me to get so caught up in keeping ourselves busy and active. And most importantly, to appearing alive to other people. That we lose our ability to sense our spiritual disease before it's too late. We should lean into Sardis because Sardis, in some ways, could be every one of us. It could be any church. It really doesn't matter what church. And the question that we should ask is, how can we learn to see with God's eyes and not get caught up in the human appearances? So in light of that, I want to read a really quick story. 1 Samuel chapter number 16. If you have your Bibles, it's a left-hand turn. 1 Samuel chapter number 16, verses 1 through 7. It should be up behind me as well. I'll give you guys a little background before we read it. This is a story starting really as King David is introduced as a character in the Bible, which if you have any familiarity with the Bible, you probably have a familiarity with King David. He's the most famous king in Israel's history. He's kind of the model king. Um, Many times Jesus himself even calls himself the son of David. This is like a, a point back to his lineage in the kingly line of David. But you need to know that David was not the first king of Israel and his line was not the first line of kings in Israel. It was actually Saul. There was a man who was chosen because Israel cried out for a king and his name was Saul. And Saul looked the part. He was a strong man. He was head and shoulders above all the other men around him. And Saul was really good at his job at first. He kept enemies away. He kept enemies at bay. He did a pretty solid job of doing what God had called him to do. And then there's this unique moment where Saul disobeys the word of God. And God comes to Samuel and says, I've chosen to anoint another king. And he says this, a man after my own heart, which is King David. Now, there's a really intriguing portion of scripture here as Samuel is weeping over Saul. He loved Saul, and yet Saul now has been rejected by God, and there's going to be a new king. And God tells us a little bit of insight into how he views humanity, how he sees that which is reality. And this is the story. It goes like this, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided for myself a king among his sons. He doesn't tell him which son, by the way, just as a note. He says, hey, I want you to go and you anoint the king. It's one of Jesse's sons. Now, as is typical at this time, they, were, they did not have a problem baby making. There's a lot of them. 
There's a lot of sons. Which one is it? Well, we'll get to that. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears that he will kill me? And the Lord said to him, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you need to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Just as a side note, I love how when Samuel shows up, everybody's like, Oh, man, this guy's here. Is it good or bad? You know? And they're kind of terrified of what Samuel might bring. It says, And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab, and he thought, Listen to this. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. All right, he looks at the first son and he's like, this guy is built. This guy's king built, all right? Ladies, I know you've thought this before in your mind. You don't have to admit that to your friends. You look at some, that guy's built like a king. That's what Samuel's saying. He's like, I'm gonna be honest, guys. He's a stud. This has gotta be the guy. He looks the part, like Saul did. He looks the part. But watch this, verse seven. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. This is the key line. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Human reputation primarily resorts to the external realities that we see. God, true reputation is the character of the heart, the heart that only God sees, the the knowingness that only God knows of what's really going on in here. And Eliab, although he looked the part and everything was right from the outside, God said, that's not what I'm after. And what's interesting is that Samuel had consecrated all of the sons except for one, guy, one son who was the littlest son who was out in the field caring for the sheep for his father, wasn't even consecrated to be a part of the meeting, and God rejects all the other sons who all looked apart, and Samuel says, well, is there someone? Is there one guy? You know, does he have any other sons? And Jesse is like, I have one boy, but he's my youngest. He's, way, he's, he's not the guy. It's like, bring him here. That's God's man. So what does that mean? Jesus sees the heart. He's looking for those with genuine, passionate love for him and not merely a a neatly branded church. He's always looking for that which is real, that which is even raw, maybe even inarticulate at times, like Peter, right? Peter's the inarticulate. I'll do anything, you know, I'll jump out of the boat to come after you, Jesus. He's looking after that. And here's the thing. Sardis fell into the trap of believing their own press, They relied on the reputation that was given to them by the outside world, and they forgot that the primary opinion that matters most is God's opinion of us. Listen to me. It's entirely possible, maybe even probable, that Sardis came by this reputation in an honest way, like it started right. It's probable that Sardis started with a passion for Jesus, a passion for people, doing the right things for the right reasons at the right time, but slowly but surely, as they began to be seen by the outside community for good, that That mattered more to them than how they were seen by God, and it turns quickly. They probably were doing all of these right things out of the right heart. Somewhere along the way, they became obsessed with how they were perceived, and in so doing, they lost the thing that should be most precious to us, the very life-giving breath of God in our midst. And it's because we make a trade. We don't it's so subtle, isn't it? Because here's the thing: there's nothing wrong. We should pray that the outside community sees the glory of God in the church so that they can also be drawn into it. That should be a prayer. We should celebrate it. The scriptures actually say this, like when there's a a righteous king on the throne, the people rejoice. So if, if King Jesus ruled on the throne of every heart in our community, that would be something we should all rejoice in. And therefore, if they see the church and see God's glory, we should be 
saying amen and amen and amen. And yet, if we become obsessed with others' opinion of us, we will soon start to try to please the world and not God. And we'll lose our very life in the process. Why is this important? It's important because collectively we should try to avoid this trap of reputation building as our culture demands for you to care more about your online friends than your actual friends. Our culture calls you to care more about your online family that might be Russian bots, you don't even know, but then your real family, who's right across from you, right? To care more about the comment section on your status than the status of your child who's watching TV with you. These are the things that our culture says, this is what you should care more about. You should care more about the likes. You should care more about the hearts. You should care more about the comments. You care more about these things than you do about even God's opinion of you. It's also important to note that church culture doesn't shift all at once. Like this didn't just happen in Sardis. It happened person by person, family by family, community by community, home group by home group, right? It's, if culture is what most people do most of the time, then we got to also think through what that might mean. Maybe that also means culture can be what most people permit most of the time. Parents, you know this, right? That the behavior that you permit becomes a culture in your children. And same way in our own communities and our own friendships, if we permit certain things, that could be what we all permit most of the time. Or how about this? Culture can also be what most people encourage in others most of the time. So if we don't encourage the Christ that we see in each other, but we encourage things that maybe are not, then maybe that's what people start to kind of start to form around. And therefore, what we encourage is what we end up getting. I say all this to say it starts by surveying our hearts individually and then at a family level and then at a group level and then beyond that to say, Lord, we don't want to fall to sleep. And in so doing, end up ignoring what's happening in the heart. Okay, let's read verse number two. What does Jesus say then? What should we do then, Jesus? Wake up is what he says. Wake up. Stop sleepwalking through life. Stop buying into your own press. Just wake up and strengthen that which remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And if you won't wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you won't know at the hour, the hour at which I will come against you. So he starts by saying we've got to wake up from the slumber. Secondarily, remember, think back on what God has given to you. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel's call. Remember our commissioning from Jesus. And then repent. Come humbly before Jesus. Come honestly before Jesus with our sin because only he can cleanse us of it. And he gives this dire warning, right? It's dire, but it's, but it's helpful. And, and why is it helpful? Well, I was thinking about this more about the idea of sleepiness. You know, when he says wake up after talking about deadness. And if we think about how we fall to sleep, none of us last night, for instance, could probably pinpoint the exact moment that we fell to sleep and what, what happened and why. We just were laying down. The conditions were probably set in order for us to sleep. Some of us, you could fall asleep at any moment. Some of you, maybe you're harder to go to sleep. So you've like watched every infomercial there is. You got brown noise, a body pillow, and like, you know, the massager on your neck and you're sleeping, right? But nonetheless, we're all trying to do something to have the conditions for sleep. And we don't know when exactly it happens, but it just happens upon us. Next thing we know, we're awake. It's important for us to be reminded of this because none of us most likely are wanting to fall to sleep on our spiritual lives. It happens when we begin to permit the conditions for sleep and no one's there to, hey, remember to wake up. Remember to wake up. Here's three things that I think Jesus says here on how we wake up. The first is, number one, to be more concerned with internal realities than external reputation. Christians, we should be more concerned with internal realities than our external reputation. 
Seeking God in earnest with the purity of heart, it doesn't mean that we have to be pure to come to Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The prerequisite for us to come to Jesus is the recognition that we're not pure and he's the cleanser. But when we recognize that we're impure, then we can come to Jesus who purifies our hearts. We readily acknowledge our need and we come to him in honesty and authenticity in realness. Number two, remember what you have heard. Jesus says this, remember what you've heard. This is the gospel. And friends, if this just becomes routine and ritual and, and it doesn't become something that embeds itself in our very life and soul, then this too, can, you can fall to sleep with the brown noise of the gospel. But I want to remind you this morning, Jesus saved us from the tyranny of sin. Jesus saved us from the indictment of the law. If somehow in our lives we halt our fight against sin, we will inevitably dry up spiritually because sin seeks to devour us. But on the flip side, if we start thinking that by keeping all the rules, by keeping all the laws, by keeping all the routines, that we're just going to happenstance be given life, we will also dry up spiritually. Do you see the two different roads here that actually lead to death? One is to think that sin's no big deal and we could just capitulate to it. No, that leads to death. But over here is thinking that your spiritual life is all about what you do and your works and not what Christ has done in his works. Faith is the heart of the gospel. It's that we trust in Jesus, our life, and it's in communion with him that we drink deeply from that well. The gospel reminds us that Christ did what you and I couldn't do, not that we either need to wake up by shaping up or just give up. No, it's the opposite. If we fall into these pits, we're going to either condone unhealthy sinful practices or we're going to start believing by setting up more rules and guardrails. That's going to keep us from sin. Listen, the only way that you and I keep ourselves awake is by keeping near to Jesus. That's it. That's the key. It's nearness to Jesus. It's closeness to Jesus, following Jesus. This is what Jesus constantly tells Peter. He says, you just keep your eyes on, on me. Or, he, Jesus said, or Peter will ask him, well, what about John? What's John's future? And, and Jesus says, well, what is that to you? You follow me. You keep your eyes on me. And listen, if we keep our eyes on religion or we keep our eyes on our own rights to live lascivious lives, we actually won't be following Jesus. Okay, and then lastly, number three, remember what you received in the gospel. I could spend so much time on this, but I'm just gonna, for the sake of time, I got like seven things or something. <laughs> in Christ, you received a new identity as sons and daughters. That's your new identity in Jesus. You're son and daughter of God. In Jesus, you have a new freedom in the grace and mercy of Christ. No longer are you chained by habitually falling underneath the condemnation of the law, but you've been given freedom in Christ. You've been given a new calling and a new purpose in the name of Jesus. Like, check this out. When you go to your job now, your boss is not really your boss, but your boss is only your boss in so much as you're serving the Lord. And that every work that you do actually has more purpose to it because I serve and I, I do my job as unto the Lord, pleasing unto the Lord, and everything else begins to fall in line. In Christ, you have a new confidence in the righteousness of Christ, where once you were afraid to pray because who am I to actually ask God for things? Now in Christ, you can be confident because God sees the righteousness of Jesus when he sees you. I'm not clean enough to pray. No, you're not, but Jesus in you is what gives you boldness. You have a new confidence to come before the king of the universe, and now you're called his son or daughter. You got a new courage and strength in Christ. Now you know you can actually share the truth and wonder of the gospel in courage. Because why? Because even if someone were to hurt even your own body, they can't take away that which is eternal in you. And lastly, you have a new life through the resurrection of Jesus. When you look at Jesus resurrected, you know that's the new life that you are walking into. Now I say all this to say, if this is all true, then that means something important about reputation. And I want you to 
perk your ears up here. If all that's true, it means that you have nothing to prove. It means you have no reason to pretend. And it means you have no incentive to perform. I'm going to say those again. Think of this in terms of reputation. If all that's true, you have nothing to prove, no reason to pretend, and no incentive to perform. And I mean before God or man. See, on the religious side, we think we have to prove ourselves to God. We have to perform for God. We have to pretend for God that everything's okay. And Jesus stands forth in the gospel and says, you don't have to do any of that because I am everything that needs to be done in order for you to be accepted in God the Father. There's no more pretending. You don't have to be somebody else. You gotta put on a mask to come into the Holy of Holies so that maybe God doesn't see me or get up in a tree like Zacchaeus hoping that Jesus doesn't see you, but you just wanna see him. You get to be who you are because Christ has made you new. You see, when we try to prove ourselves, it's because we're after approval. We want to be good and we want people to acknowledge that. But in Christ, you have already been approved of because of what Jesus has done. By faith, when you unite yourself to faith in Jesus, you're approved of by God. When we pretend, it's because we want acceptance, right? It's the pickup basketball game when you realize you're not as good as everybody else, so you like run back to your car and like Google up some statistics that you can talk about, right? You pretend to be more than you are in front of your peers so that you can be accepted, but Jesus has already done what needs to be done for you and I to be accepted into his family. We don't have to pretend. Like you can be the, the worst person on the court. It's all good because of Christ. We don't have to perform. Why do we perform? We perform for applause, right? We want applause. And I wanted to just say this, like there's something innately human about that that you shouldn't be like trying to act like that's not true of you. It's entirely true of you. And I think God's actually placed it there. Like ladies, the fact that on your wedding day, you get a little bit packed off if another girl tries to be the main thing, that's normal. You know, someone comes up to you the whole time, you look beautiful. You're like, oh no, not me. Say it again. You know, that's normal. It's entirely normal. I think it's human. Here's where it gets twisted and disordered. It's when we think that that chasm in the soul to have applause can be filled by human beings rather than the applause of heaven. It's what we really desire is to stand before God one day and him say this to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And in front of the heavenly angels, he confesses your name to the father and the chorus resounds that you did it. That's what we really want, isn't it? And so if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll live for that applause of man. And if you watch, even celebrities in their darkest moments, read their journals, they say the darkest moments they have are after all the applause is over and they're alone at their house because they know I gotta do it again to feel, to feel that feeling. I gotta perform again. And if I don't perform, then I'm not gonna get it. But in the gospel, that desire to be celebrated is met in Jesus, that you will Be celebrated when you're welcomed into the glory of Christ. Why? Because he's already performed to perfection. You see, this is no small thing that Jesus says to remember this. He's telling you to remember this so that you don't have to buy into this reputation obsession that Sardis has. Okay, the last bit here though. What does Jesus say after that? Starting in verse four. Yet you still have a few names of people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. 
You see, Jesus points out that most in Sardis have already soiled their garments, but some have not. And then he promises to clothe those in white who have not soiled their garments. Now, here's the irony, is that he's saying the people most likely to care most about what they wore to church that Sunday are the ones who actually had soiled garments. You catching this? The ones who have soiled garments are the ones that have the best Instagram you've ever seen. Black and white filters, all of it. It's looking good. Listen, I'm not casting dispersions if that's you. You have a talent, okay? But... It's awesome. It's good. You could use that for the glory of God. Another conversation. But, but nonetheless, the people that you most likely would say, got it all together, Jesus shows up and says, there's a lot of sold garments in the room. And then there's those people who you think, man, they're imperfect. They're all messy. And those are the people that Jesus says, they're real. They're honest. They love me. They pursue me. They're humble. They're going to walk with me in white. You see, clothes, the idea of clothing in scripture is often symbolically used to define the state of one's heart. For instance, in the scripture, it says when you don't have clean hands or you have dirty garments, there's this scripture in Zechariah, I believe it is, where there's Joshua, the high priest, standing before God's throne, and he's filthy garments all over him. And it's always symbolizing what's happened in the heart, that we're guilty, right? An example of this is the Pharisees, as they present themselves to Jesus. Jesus rebukes them and makes fun of them. He says this, you'd like to make your phylacteries broad and your fringes long. Now, that's first century Jewish speak for this. You care a lot about your robes. Like they would walk around with these long robes and fringes and they would pray in the streets and the marketplaces. And they stood up boldly and, you know, would, would love the applause of man. And Jesus shows up and tells them, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look great on the outside, inside dead man's bones. He looks at them in Matthew 23 and says, you're like a dirty cup on the outside, pristinely painted. On the inside, it's full of filth and you just fill it up and keep drinking it. And you offer it to others. See, the Pharisees loved their clothing more than they loved the internal realities of their soul. In contrast, John the Baptist was known for the opposite. John the the Baptist was the guy who we were like, what is he wearing? Like he went out into the wilderness and like killed an animal and then just started wearing it. And he would show up to church, you know, like, oh, this guy. And then you're like, oh man, he's the preacher. That's John. I'm not kidding, Reacher, but what did he eat? He ate locusts. It's like he got to Mission Burrito and he pulls out his like little, you know, Tupperware. And he's like, what are you eating over there? You know, he's got the weird diet. That's him. And yet he's the one honored by Jesus saying, my cousin over here is the one who's got it right, right? In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, I want to read this. This is Peter speaking about wives in particular. Now, ladies, don't get too mad at me yet. We're going somewhere with this. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, gals, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I know that that's a verse that, you know, it's the reason I'm not on social media. If I put that one up there, I'm not getting a lot of likes, okay? But walk with me on this. Even in the days of the apostles, there was a temptation for women to adorn themselves outwardly and forget the adorning of the heart. And I I think there's a fundamental reason and there's a a lingering reason after that. The fundamental reason, guys, we all agree, women are are more beautiful than men, period. That's just fundamentally true. If you have a problem with that, I, I didn't say you weren't handsome. Just saying it's not the same. The temptation that comes for women, though, is to focus so heavily on their outward appearance because they were created by God beautifully So they could focus so much on their appearance so that the complimentary comments or the second glances of others, they begin to satisfy those, temporarily satisfy those longings for acceptance, approval, and accolades. That's the temptation for gals. So Peter comes in and says, hey, don't do that. 
And let, hear me on this. This is not what Peter's not saying. Hey, don't care at all about, like, if you put makeup on this morning, you're just doing, you're unbiblical. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's got to be an order of what matters most. And he's saying what, what matters most, what's precious in the sight of God, is that which is internal. Gals, if you put on makeup this morning, more power to you. Glory to God, okay? But here's what I want to ask. If Peter says that the inward adorning is more precious and more life-giving than the outward, that the temporary vainglory of external praise cannot compare to the eternal weight of glory in Christ that a woman who is inwardly adorned with character will experience, then it begs the question, if this is true for the brides of men, how much more true is it for the bride of Christ? Think of it for a second. If he's saying this to the brides, to the women in their marriages, can we not take a, draw a direct line between that and the church, how we all are supposed to live? The church is meant to be inwardly adorned. Another thing Jesus might be saying here is, church, don't worry so much about the likes on the sermon. Worry if I liked it or not. <laughs> like if God liked the sermon but, but people didn't, it's okay. In fact, it's better. How about this one? We talk about this a lot, but worship. It's not so much if, if the song was production quality, Hillsong quality. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, I felt the spirit through the screen. Was God pleased with the heart of our worship? That's what we should care about. And that's it, it's period. That's the end of the sentence. That's what's most important. And here's what we know to be true is God has wired the universe that all of creation will join that song eventually. You will be on the right side of history if you're on that side because it's God's history. So the question is this, and this is an important question. It may seem elementary. Do we want to look clean or do we want to actually be clean? Do we want to look forgiven or do we want to be forgiven? Church people, hear me. Do we want to look righteous or do we want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Because this scripture gives us so much hope. Jesus says here, they'll walk with me in white. I'll never blot their names out of the book of life. In other words, Jesus is saying, He's still in the business of cleansing people. Jesus still longs to take that which is about to die in us and raise it up. Let me put it another way. If you're sitting here now and you know your spiritual life is dying or dead and you don't want to tell other people that, but you know it internally, Jesus can still resurrect you, can resurrect your spiritual life. That which is dying and rotting and you haven't told anybody, he's in the business of saying, hey, I know what's going on. I know you and I love you. Come back. Jesus can wash us clean again, and in so doing, he can simultaneously free us from the bondage of the opinions of man and give us the true life that's offered in relationship with him. You don't have to be chained by what people think about you. Because here's what I could promise you. Just like they turned on Jesus within a couple of days, they could turn on you too. But here's the good news. When Jesus cleanses you and he brings you into his family, he does it for good. Or in other words, I will not blot out their names from the book of life ever once he writes it with his nail-scarred hand in that book, he's done. It's finished. He washes his hands of this. You are his child. Or as Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How can you be sure that everything's going to work out okay for you if you're in Christ? The answer is because it's not up to you. It's up to Jesus. He's got a great track record of fulfilling promises. He is undefeated in doing what he says he's going to do. And one of the things he said he was going to do was keep you. So, I want to end with where this thing starts in verse number one. Why is it intriguing the way that Jesus introduces himself? Well, here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Sardis, I write, 
the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Man, commentators say a lot about this. Here's what I want to say. We already know that the seven stars represent the seven angels of the churches. The seven spirits, everybody disagrees, everybody agrees. It's the book of Revelation, guys, okay? It's tons of ideas. Here's what I'll say. What we can know for sure is that he's saying he is the king, he is the God, he is the one who's the ruler of the unseen, the ruler of that which is not seen, of the angelic realms, the spiritual realms, the one who sees our hearts, the hidden parts that nobody else sees. Jesus is the king of that. And he's calling us to care more about that which is unseen than that which is seen and presented. To use the example of David and Saul, David and Saul, listen to me, were both sinful men, arguably David more so than Saul. You might be thinking, no way, Saul did the thing in the, remember he did the whole, didn't kill Agag's uh, whole family. God's not cool with that. Yeah, David was not only a murderer, but an adulterer, and he was a horribly treasonous guy, did some terrible stuff. So why is it that David's reputation was to be remembered as a man after God's own heart and Saul's reputation is to be the man that God said, I rejected him? We know it's not on the basis of their works. I contend that it's the difference between Saul, who was obsessed with everyone else's opinion of him, or to quote 1 Samuel chapter 18, he says, they have said of David that he kills his ten thousands and me only thousands. What else can he be given except the very kingdom? In other words, to Saul, the kingdom itself was, or what was, the opinions of man was almost as important as the kingdom itself. He had equated these two things as though the opinions of Israel was more important than the opinion of God. It was so, it had eaten him up inside. And then there's David who cared most about what God thought about him. In, in Psalm chapter 51, after the incident with Bathsheba, he says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, you might see that as an arrogant statement. It's like, no, you sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. No, David is saying, oh, yes, I sinned against them. But first and foremost, I sinned against you, O oh God. And your opinion of me is what matters most. And so I want to leave you with that. As Jesus calls you to himself, the one who is the ruler of the unseen, if you want to be sure that your reputation will stand eternally, here's what I can promise you. If you will entrust your reputation to Jesus, your reputation will be solid eternally. Any other way, any other way, and it will not only be corrupted, but it will corrupt you. This was laid at the feet of Jesus. Jesus, you vindicate my name. Jesus, you take my reputation. I want to be the man who you call me to be. I want to be the woman you call me to be. I want to be the father you call me to be. I want to be the mother that you call me to be. And lay it at the feet of Jesus and watch as he maintains the spotless, white, clean reputation that you so deeply desire. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, we confess, I confess to you now, even now, the pull and the draw of the opinions of man. We lay it down at your feet. Help us to be men and women and help us to be a church that cares more about what you have said, what you have done, than we care about the external. And in so doing, Lord, I hope it doesn't make us an unloving people. Help us to be a loving people. That simultaneously, as we don't care so much about our reputation in the eyes of the world, we could care about people and love them. Jesus, make our hearts pure in your sight. We come to you with hands unclean, and we just trust you to clean them. 
And as we sing songs of worship and partake in communion, we ask that you'd help us to do so with honesty and realness and just be who you already know that we are and lay it out before you that we might walk in wholeness of life. We trust you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.